Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Websites Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Amaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hello again. And third-year psychiatry resident Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we are going for part three of medical documentation, charting an open note, because there we have so many darn questions. And we are absolutely thrilled to have join us for this part three episode Dr. Tony Thrasher. Dr. Thrasher is a board-certified psychiatrist employed as the medical director for the Crisis Services Branch of the Milwaukee County Behavioral Health Division. He received his psychiatric training from Washington University in St. Louis at Barnes Jewish Hospital, and he is the current president of the American Association for Emergency Psychiatry, a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, and president-elect for both the Wisconsin Psychiatric Association and Wisconsin Association of Osteopathic Physicians and Surgeons, and you can currently see him on the Psychiatric Times website, hosting a series of Mental Health Minute webinars. Dr. Thrasher, Tony, thank you for joining us for part three on Open Notes. Thank you for having me. And I recognize the obligation of being in a trilogy and how much <laughs> the, the third part needs to hold up. So I'm looking forward to the conversation right. as well. Right. You're, 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 you're probably our, our only, what, second or third <clears throat> trilogy. Yeah. Our first one was Cannabis. Yeah. yeah, you're you're, competing with cannabis. you're you're as exciting as cannabis law. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, now I'm going to hold you guys to that. That's going to be a quote somewhere. The t-shirt. I, I, I'd like to ask the first question, if, 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 if I may. Um, I want to kind of uh, revisit something that you mentioned earlier. You mentioned process notes. So for folks who may not uh, recognize this, this is, these are not chart in the chart, typing in the chart notes. These are just kind of notes for us as clinicians. Now, um, the open note era has opened up new pressures and um, potential problems for a person that regularly keeps a lot of process notes, because if you already have to, quote, fix your language for the chart, if you have to chart differently, you have to avoid uh, technical jargon, you have to say things in a recovery language, you have, you have, you have to think that the, someone with low insight may read it tomorrow and there, that could affect treatment. Well, there's such, it, this is my take that um, about clinicians, there's a strong pull to put ac your, your unfiltered, uncensored self into your process notes, to put the actual information of what's actually give, uh, going on rather than rely on the quote, fixed and censored version in the medical <laughs> chart. But, and, but am I getting that wrong? Or do you, do you also kind of sense that possible problem? I do. And, and when I think of process notes, I, I would really have, I would encourage people to look at them purely as some, a place to keep sensitive information that once again, doesn't cover diagnosis, prognosis, or treatment, because that must be in your open note uh, for your own individual usage. I, I have some concerns that you bring up, Aaron, that I think are on that, that are very, very worrisome over time. One is we are already stressed for time to document. And what we're describing here is double documentation, right? You've already done your note. Now you're doing something else, which then has its own well-evidence-based concerns with burnout and uh, physician satisfaction and physician performance. So you got the double documentation. I also worry at times 
that we may be counterproductive to what I, my optimism towards the era of the open note, which is not only are we going to be better uh, protecting ourselves legally uh, in how we write, but also that we can engage the patient. And part of that is really kind of committing to it. And if we're always doing kind of documentation A and then documentation B, I wonder how much we're going to be fighting ourselves and creating some conflict that may not need be there. And then lastly, my worrisome, my most worrisome thing is what I mentioned in a prior episode about a hidden curriculum. I have uh, heard anecdotal components where people are doing such detailed progress notes, kind of a handoff to each other as this is what's really going on, that it almost feels disingenuous and or more stigmatizing than things would have even been if the notes weren't open. So I admit those are likely dramatic examples and not the norm, but it does make me worry if people are using process notes for more than just keeping a couple things that they want to keep separate, but are really putting a lot of time into it to develop this secondary note. I'm not so sure that's going to be beneficial in many domains. Tony, can you elaborate on that kind of uh, the thing that you said people are doing to pass off that that is worse than just doing nothing at all? I wasn't quite sure I understood that. No, absolutely. I, Alan, I kind of ran through it real quick. So I'll give the, uh, let's do a stereotypical uh, inpatient unit where okay. you are working with several other colleagues, you have other physicians you work with, you have attendings, you have interns, maybe you have pharmacy students, you have nurses. So in addition to all the notes that people are properly documenting, they're keeping separate paper charts on individuals with the mm-hmm. real information that then can often be not that appropriate and mm-hmm. sometimes can run into uh, higher degrees of countertransference, maybe even some catharsis that was well intended, but did not turn out the way it was intended. And it starts getting shared by people. And I think that's damaging emotionally to a team. It would also be incredibly damaging if it ever became part of actual discovery of a lawsuit. Um, oh, which yeah. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be, but when you have that many people contributing to an informal off the record document that is shared with other people, I could see that going sideways in a whole myriad of, of uh, possibilities. In several places that I've trained and, and just been, yeah. uh, I think this may almost be like a fairly, like, I don't want to say universal, nothing's universal, but it seems like a lot of that goes on, on, on uh, group texts. And it's and there it's not even HIPAA compliant. Right. And it's like, right. Because you have one place for the professional talk. The only thing you have left is the unprofessional talk. And it, yeah, it seems like uh, a, not only like a, an illegal and unethical thing, but a way to really um, identify with our worst selves and something that doesn't really it doesn't sound good for our identities as physicians for us to be kind of. Um, having the, the, the sharing being taking place on the least common denominator on a non HIPAA based platform. It, it just, the whole thing is, is kind of gross. Agreed. And, it, and it's, it's self-defeating if you think about it, right? The whole idea of this is to be more transparent. <laughs> if you're doing that, we're actually going backwards and which then will cause conflict and discomfort amongst ourselves because we're trying to serve two different masters. So uh, what do you do when you have speculation about what Mike is going on? It, are you saying that because this kind of speculation might be treatment uh, uh, or impact treatment, you can't put that in your process notes if you keep process notes? Once again, I think each individual system will have their own way of defining it and probably telling their staff on what is and is not. But the way the federal kind of statute rolled out was you can't put anything solely in process notes, meaning that it won't be in the open note, but solely in process notes that are directly impacting treatment prognosis or diagnosis. Mm. I can think of a lot of sensitive things that don't necessarily fit in that. And I think they wrote it fairly nebulous and on purpose. 
But that being said, how everybody, you know, we were mentioning earlier, how people choose to follow you and see if you're doing this and or audit it and or think about it. This is all going to be probably somewhat location specific, not even state specific, but depending who you work for, what EHR you're on and how they choose to operationalize this. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned prognosis uh, a few times there. And I started wondering, like, am I doing something majorly wrong? Because I can't think of many notes that I've written that have a lot about prognosis. Can you, Tosh? Can you, Aaron? Yeah, I usually. What do you write about? What's an example? Am I just not realizing that what something I'm writing is is addressing the prognosis? That would be my guess, Alan. So here's another great way to really lean into, and I I know that's an overused word, but lean into patient-centered, hope-filled, kind of future recovery oriented documentation. So when we're treating somebody for say a traumatic experience, I think something you may put in your notes that's more prognosis related is, hey, we're starting this medication, but please note that this particular medication is really intended to help you with certain symptoms like your nightmares or difficulty initiating sleep. It probably won't address a lot of your traumatic recollections, but instead we have hoped that by going through the groups and working on some of the homework that you were given earlier by Dr. Parks, that you're going to start to see an alleviation of this. And in fact, we would expect this to start to see some uh, alleviation of your symptoms in the next four to six weeks. It's just little things like that. And and I can say this because I'm often on the back end of receiving a grievance from a patient who has misunderstood things. Most issues between patients and physicians are not malicious. They are misunderstandings. Now, whether that is a true miscommunication on the term of the sender or the physician or a misunderstanding on the reception aspect of the patient or the client, there's still a misunderstanding. So I think we use prognosis a lot in our notes to define expectations. And expectations goes a long way. If you just had, hypothetically, the death of a spouse and you're having transient suicidality and feelings of hopelessness, and I give you Zoloft, if your belief is that my Zoloft is going to keep you from crying or thinking about your spouse or having any thoughts of death in the next week, that's an unfair expectation. And so I may want to really call that out of my note, not just for, for my own medical legal protection, but to really be honest with the patient about what to expect. Don't forget that we can be intimidating. Patients don't remember everything we say during our meetings. Having something that they can take home as a document that they can refer to, I really think is, is an untapped area of treatment for our field. Interesting. So, so prognosis is a required, I, I've almost, I don't know that I can remember ever seeing a formal prognosis section in an assessment and plan, at least in a psych note. And I don't, I mean, I, I might write those things. I, I, I you know, I, I would probably do expectation management if I felt it was necessary. I probably wouldn't be doing it on a patient who I was seeing for the 12th time. I wouldn't be saying, oh, by the way, this SSRI is a treatment, not a cure and all the stuff that I might say the first two times I'm starting it. And I, I don't feel like other people are doing that. Like what, what's, what's, what gives here? Is this, this is a legally required thing to have in every note? Nope. It is a point of clarification. It is not. It is not part of any E&M billing that I'm aware of. But what the federal guideline is speaking to is they're not saying you have to have it in your open note. They're saying you can't shelter anything that is pertinent to prognosis in a process. Got it. Because that I'm seeing that as like maybe that could be coming yeah, from a, a racism standpoint or, a, or oh. A, like, oh, this patient's not going to do anything anyway. They're going to lose insurance in two months or something that you're writing in your yep. private post it. That's. Um, It is is not required for any note that I'm aware of. I do think there's a lot of cool ways to utilize it to really build that rapport and give the patient some, some hope. A lot of our patients don't have a lot of hope. 
And most people they've worked with, uh, whether it be purposefully or otherwise, they've been marginalized and kind of beat down. So I think it's our chance to really kind of give them some of that. But to your point, it is not required. It just means you can't take anything about prognosis and only speak about it in your process note and not also put it in your open note. Diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis must be at least in the open note. Got it. Tosh and Aaron, are you guys doing a lot of prognosticating in your notes? I say that I've discussed prognosis and if there's something really specific that I counsel them on that uh, stands out in comparison to general cases, I'll put it in my assessment. Mm. I guess a risk assessment is sort of a prognosis in a way. Especially, I don't know. I mean, when you're doing like medication counseling, you know, going over the risks and benefits of treatment versus not treatment. Yeah. But that doesn't feel like a formal prognosis. Maybe I need to edit my practice. It doesn't feel like I I have, when I have a patient who comes in with their family and it's new schizophrenia, you know, I feel like almost the whole session is prognostic. It's just, Hey, here's what we need to, here's, here's expectation management, finding out what they're ready for doing the spikes criteria. Are we going to need to take several sessions to even talk about this? Is this something that they're ready for? Or should we just say unspecified right now and, and, and kind of give them what they're ready for as it comes because they're pushing back hard, you know, and, and do I know enough to really say, you know, I mean, the, the, the schizophrenia criteria requires amounts of time just because something looks like schizophrenia doesn't mean you can prognosticate those kind of things. Um, but then someone comes in with like, I don't know. Um, someone comes in with a, who, who, who's transferring to you from another doctor and you're continuing meds. And I don't know, it's just, it might not be the first thing in my mind to do any kind of prognosticating. And I don't think you have to, um, but I do think like, for instance, in your schizophrenia one, I can think of, you know, like you said, a million things you would say, including I would probably close my session with, we still have so much more to talk about. Please understand this is a serious illness. It's, It's a chronic illness. And no matter where our initial treatment may go, please come back to me or a fellow mental health professional. Please don't drop off treatment because we know that the prognosis for that is quite poor. Even if there's something about what we have started in the treatment that you don't like, if you find something online that you are not comfortable with, if you hear about it from somebody else, please come talk to me or talk to somebody else before. I think there's a lot of damage done to our patients by lack of access to care that is often initiated by the patient or the patient's family. Yeah. So that's, so that's a great place to just remind them, hey, we're just getting started. It's a good thing to remind them schizophrenia is not a sinus infection. And right. I don't expect, but I mean- you, we all know this, but so many patients, this has never been explained to them. I've seen so many people in our psychiatric ER, they come in full of tears saying, I have been, my child has been taking these meds for six months and they're not back where they were beforehand. Right. And that's heartbreaking because they have gone through six months of pain and some artificial expectations because nobody has given them kind of the prognosis. It doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. I think there's a way in the theme of the open note to take some of these news and make it more patient centric and what we expect to have and what we expect to see. There's this idea of inoculation that uh, I, I think I'm reminded of the film 51st dates. Um, I think I, if I, I don't even, I don't even know if I've seen that movie, but in my head, what happens is he makes like <laughs> videos for himself saying like in the future, you're not going to, you know, you're you, this is your wife or, or whatever, something like that. 
And, and, and I, in terms of what someone with schizophrenia, when you're doing the prognosis, I've a few times tried, and I have no idea if there's evidence one way or another about this, but I've tried in my prognosticating to say, you know, you have excellent insight right now. That's fantastic when they do have excellent insight. And, and I want you to know now this is uh, talking to some of delusions and saying like, you know, you, you may, some of this disease may get between us in the future and you may not believe things I'm saying if you can be transparent about that, that will be helpful. We can try to work through it together. And I have no idea whether that is, I don't know, frankly, masturbatory or whether that is actually something that could be helpful, whether I'm deluding myself. I really think that's quite helpful. I don't know to be very transparent. I do a similar process. So uh, it could just that's be validating. That I'm, that I'm recognizing it. And I really like hearing you say it. But that being said, I, I think that's such, I mean, let's use another example of a severe and persistent that many of us work with is bipolar disorder. And a lot of people with bipolar disorder, the issue is not that the medications have side effects. They don't like how the medications make them feel. They would prefer to be hypomanic. They don't want to be, as I had one patient, one of my favorite patients back in the day had said, it's no offense, Dr. Thrasher. I just don't want to be like you. And I knew exactly what he meant. And I was not offended in the least. And what a great time. He doesn't to say, want to have extra teeth. No extra teeth. He doesn't want to be relatively euthymic more days than not. Um, and if you're wondering about extra teeth, then you have to check out part one of the podcast. Um, but, but I do think that what a great way to say, hey, listen, I guarantee you there's going to be times that you can go off medications and that you're not going to have symptoms. That is the issue with bipolar disorder is we have these large periods of euthymia that are sometimes not always clearly affected by compliance or non-compliance. That's going to make you falling up with me much more difficult. So I actually, I like where you mentioned it because it reminds them that, you know what, we're partners in this. I am not trying to control you. This is your body. This is your life, but I'm a subject matter expert. I will put your needs first. I can help you, but that means that sometimes you're not going to agree with what I have to say. And that's okay. You don't have to agree with all of it, but please keep coming back. Please talk to me. And if we reach an impasse where you don't want to work with me anymore, let me find you somebody else. Can you imagine how many people just stop seeing one doctor? They don't then go find another doctor. There's then years that often pass where people don't have any treatment and are just being affected by untreated symptoms. So I, I guess I say this to say, I think there's a lot of cool things you can do by being open and honest with people in the note. I think it will also give them a better understanding of who we are as physicians and how much we care. Because to be honest, there's a lot of things in the world that doesn't give patients the understanding of how much physicians care for them. Um, can I, um, and this isn't specifically address open notes, but I was just um, uh, kind of, uh, I wanted your opinion about uh, the, the, the usefulness of process notes. I've had trainings where they they said that this really helped with legal issues that came up that uh, that, that they were they were sued and then they consulted their process notes were, were super detailed and filed and then this got them out of a lawsuit and then I've heard other another training where it said you know if you can this is not the greatest thing in the world to keep a lot of process notes um, and that you you know it's just better just chart immediately <laughs> after the session keep your set keep your notes very detailed what what where, where do you stand on this. I've heard the same things that you have, Aaron. And to be fair, I am not familiar. I think a great place to check would be Apple, uh, the American Academy of Psychiatry and the law to see if they actually have a, a process statement on this or a formal. I don't know if they do have a statement or not. Um, but I, to me, I would I get why some people may say, hey, my memory isn't great. And these process notes really help me get involved. And if that's the case and that's your learning process, then I'm not going to say you nay. But personally, I would don't want to have other pieces of paper just laying around that can be discovered 
then to me, if I was a prosecuting attorney, I could have fun with that on the stand. Why wasn't this in the chart, Dr. Thrasher? Why were, why was, was it your pattern to deceive my client? Uh, is, is, is Dr. Parks not sufficient enough to understand this information on his own? Why did you need to have this extra piece of paper? What other extra pieces of paper do you have? Uh, can we have access to those? How do I know you don't have? I mean, there's just a lot of ways. If it actually gets to litigation, a lot of litigation is about believability and likability. There has been proven in many studies where oftentimes uh, people's decisions to either sue a provider and jury's decisions to award or not award on that suit are based upon likability and relatability of the individual. And I'm just worried that having too many process notes could take you down a road where they could make you look silly. I would much rather say it was in my notes. And sometimes the best answer that most experienced defense attorneys will tell you, sometimes the best answer is, I don't know. I don't remember. You aren't supposed to remember everything. You don't know everything. If it was, you know, six years ago, what you have is your note to reflect on. I don't think they can really do too much with that if you're just open and honest about it. And then don't um, don't start to speculate. That's when uh, problems get into it. That's probably the biggest problem psychiatrists have when they are being um, uh, cross-examined is we like to explain things. We like to kind of get people to understand our point of view, and that is not what is necessary in a court of law. You need to say just what the bare minimum is. Okay, so this is this is something I hear all the time, and I think it's I'm confused because to me it sounds like it's counter to what you said in last episode. That like I, I remember you saying something that felt like more is better, and then but I and I'm constantly hearing less is better. What and and then I, I think Tosh and I were talking about like um, how much do you explain? your rationale for what you do. Let's, uh, yeah, let's, let's hear what you, your thoughts on all that. The two different pieces and, and you're right, they have different answers, but they are different things. So I think the question you were referring to from our last episode was about documentation. And, and Aaron had mentioned, you know, is it better to go less or more? I do think you should be a more plentiful documenter. I think you should have information in your notes. However, what I'm referring to now is when you are cross-examined, that is a different story. When you are on the stand being asked questions, oh. you should not just start expounding on things. Um, you know, the, the ever popular question is, do you know what time it is? Yes. Correct. Now, can you tell me what time it is? How does that affect your likability? Yes. I mean, but, I guess you got to do it in a cute way. Like, it, like it's. Yeah, it, it would, it, believe me, it, it's, you will definitely see it work. And whatever attorney is representing, you would prep you with that type of knowledge as well. But once again, those are two drastically different things. Most people will not spend most of their medical career on the stand unless you're a forensic specialist. Most of you will spend your career documenting. So for documenting, give it some depth, give it some information. That's what people are going to read. That's often what maybe if they're considering a lawsuit or not, how good is your note? Uh, another joke, you know, it's the old joke about how fast you have to beat out swim a shark faster right. than your faster than your friend. Right. If they can find another note that is not as good as yours, there's a better chance they're going to go after that person and not you. But on the stand, don't get into an expounding commentary. It's just too easy. Lawyers are great at their jobs and they will pick up on something you said and then work with it. Mm. What are your thoughts on using racial identifiers in the one liner? Yeah. I have gone away from it. Yes. I cannot tell you that that is necessarily something that was kind of, it was such a learned behavior for me and my training to always have that as part of your identifying information. But the more I got into it, I, to me, any information I put in the chart 
should help me with my decision making. It should have a rationale. For instance, it's the old saying, right? You don't draw a lab unless you know what you're going to do with the test results. So if I'm putting something in my note, it means something. Um, and I have not found great evidence that using ethnic or racial identifiers is necessarily helping the patient. Now, I can give you a very clear uh, contrasting example of that in my own workplace. I've had many people telling me we have a busy psych ER. It's full of, you know, 10 to 20 patients at all different levels of acuity at any time. It helps us to look at that line and know who we're looking for. Am I looking for a 65-year-old black male or a 25-year-old white female or a 36-year-old Asian uh, female? Who knows? But I, with all those different circumstances, I just don't see a lot of benefit in it. And I do yeah, I'm not buying that. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not buying. I take the extra second to figure out what who your patient is. That, that's my take as well. Alan, that's my, that's my take as well. So personally, I do not use them, Tosha. So um, as an Asian female, I actually like to have the racial identifier in the one-liner. I feel like my identity is a really important part of understanding me, especially if someone is trying to take a biopsychosocial approach to understanding my individual case. I think it's important. Yeah. So, so this is good. This is, this is some good debate here. So I would say, um, first off, I think there's a preponderance of evidence that race in medicine has been used mostly against patients and not for patients. And that what, and you know, you look at like rates of antisocial personality diagnosis in, um, you know, people of color, particularly black men. And, but, but, you know, if someone's writing in their biopsychosocial, um, Tosha has experienced recent uh, discomfort and and almost trauma level fear, let's say, because of um, recent anti-Asian violence and the way that it affected her uncle or, or whatever, like that something that's in the patient's history that's thoughtful and compassionate. That's very different than 84 um, year old Asian man. Like that's not a deep thought. That's just the first the, 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 the second word behind age that they cared about with this person was their race, which to me, uh, I think it, I mean, I'm sure it does good. I would, I would suspect that it does more harm than good. And Tosha, you have an ex, an interesting point that I would like to kind of tie back to this open note component. When you are documenting, sometimes it's not what you say, it's where in your note you say it. So one of the biggest allegations against physicians and documentation is the anchoring bias and they develop the anchoring bias by your first sentence or two. And that's why those first sentences or two, particularly your lead in comment is massively important. If I lead with Tony presents with homelessness and malingering, if that's my lead in, they are going to have fun with me on the stand. They, I, they may be wrong, but they can allege all they want that I did not give this person a fair shake that I'd already made up my mind about them, et cetera, et cetera. So why do I say this? Because I think it's important that what we start with is purely kind of just where they identifying, but then as we go through our note, we may develop medical decision-making. And some of that may be informed by the patient and the patient's quotes. So to tie this back to what you had said, what I have often done is I've erased that from my initial, like my kind of initial comments. But then as I get down into my assessment and plan, if somebody's identity, and I found this very often, particularly um, in the trans population, if it's a really important thing that they want recognized and that it's an important part of who they are and they should be recognized, then I put that in my assessment and plan. And I use that not just for a documentation, but also as a reminder on future visits and other professionals, what it is. The but I think trans, it's probably, yeah. Oh, sorry. 
Go ahead, please. The the trans one is is different for me because I feel like it it's almost a necessary modifier to the sex. So I'll write, you know, 34-year-old male of trans experience. And I sort of feel like that needs to be front and center so that whoever's seeing my note kind of knows what pronouns they're using. And it's like orienting information. Whereas I don't feel like they need to be warned that, oh, there's a black man coming into your office, you know? It's a good differentiation. It's a good differentiation. I I get what you're saying about like where it goes indicates priority and and it may indicate someone's priority in terms of how they're managing the assessment and plan. Um, but I wouldn't say the argument that, you know, doctors uh, have bias and discriminate based off of race is a reason to exclude it. Um, I would say that's a reason to just do more education to for those physicians. I mean, I also I think based on the amount of um social justice work that you do, I think there are assumptions like, at least for me, when I'm imagining what your notes are like and what your work is like, I think there's probably a lot of built in um, social justice into your notes that justifies the thought about race and the use of race. I don't think that's true for a huge, huge, vast majority of not just medical doctors, but even psychiatrists. I think for the most part, they're just putting in the race as another thing, like they're putting in the sex, which, and I don't even put in the sex, by the way, I put in, if I can, I put in a sex conferring thing, like, um, like happily, uh, married wife or a mother of four or something that's more than just the sex one. Cause I want it to be, to be rich with information, but two, because to me, that feels more, um, I don't know, like it just feels better. And that's the last word. Alan, that's the last that you have tonight. And thank you so much, uh, Tony, for joining us on this edition of Let's Get Psych. We talked about open notes. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, sir. And also thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi, Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedoncucr at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Baum. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. All right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Tony, you've been talking about this all over the country for a while now. What are some interesting things you'd like to share from your experience talking with people all over? Um, what would you like to share with us? I actually just had um, a conference that was highly attended by persons with lived experience and family members of persons with lived experience. And it was one of the most fascinating discussions because the majority of them had really focused on, I'm not so sure I want to read this. Uh, meaning that we welcome your documentation. I trust that you guys as doctors are doing it well, but a lot of them refer to past traumas and said, I've worked really hard to not think about these traumas every day. And even though I know it's your job to kind of keep an eye on it, to see how my progress is and to help get me through these things, it's not something I want to be reminded of every single time I look at a note. So I thought that was a really interesting reframe. And it's a good reminder that this is meant to empower patients. If, I think it probably has other rationale as well, but the, I think the optimistic perspective on this is how can we use this to
to empower patients so that they don't feel that they're just part of a system, that they don't feel that they don't understand things and that they and their doctor are just not on the same page. Once again, that's where most of the complaints that the American public has about their physicians. They don't understand me. They don't know where I'm coming from. And this type of transparency should fix that. Will it cause other problems? Absolutely. But it should fix some of those transparency issues. And just to clarify, when you say people with lived experience, are you talking about people of color? Are you talking about people with trauma? Are you talking about... Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Sorry, this was from a uh, a NAMI conference. Uh, And so it was persons with lived experience of mental health. Mm, mm. So those those that are actually patients and being treated and then uh, attending conferences to learn more about um, their treatment options and who they are and to give, I think, really important feedback. So uh, depending upon uh, the area of your practice where this has become more of a codified part of treatment teams, peer specialists, peer support agents, things of that nature. Can we go deeper into that term? Because I also haven't heard how that term is used. Is that is that specific to referring to maybe it's like a a better and and more strength based word for patients or does that what what does that uh, phrase mean? By that, you mean with lived experience? Yes. Yeah. So to that, I have heard that most often in the advocacy world. So either from those that are advocating for those with mental illness or those themselves who have mental illness. I am not someone that is against the term patient. I don't think there's a pejorative term. Uh, I don't take any pejorative connotation out of the word patient, Mm -hmm. but I do know that for a lot of people, when they are dealing with a mental illness and they are not in an active treatment setting, they're not in your outpatient clinic, they're not an ER, they're not an inpatient unit, that very often the term patient isn't what they like to go by. It's more about lived experience. So, so it's interesting though, that like the term doesn't include what their lived, ex- like, right. It doesn't say, so it's just, and, and that's why I, like, I could see what Tosh is saying about like, oh, yeah. does this mean, uh, does this mean like BIPOC folks that have right. lived experience of racism and structural oppression? Um, the, the reason they don't suggest what the lived experience is of is because it's kind of implied in the context of where they're speaking. I would think so. I think in most of the cases where I have seen it used, or I, even I myself have used it, it's usually in the context of mental health education. Um, but to Tosh's point, it could easily be used for BIPOC or many other. It's not a, I don't think it's a phrase that is trademarked purely for the those dealing with mental health conditions. But I do think it's one that I see more and more utilized at the national level by people living with mental health conditions. Got it. What's your um, thoughts about... Um how much information that you would want to provide for someone that can easily see their uh, notes and their chart, like the the next day, it just posts immediately. Do you, Mm -hmm. is your, are your opinion that you would write, you would say, uh, um, encourage them? Because my take is that so far, since this has been instituted, it's been instituted for uh, several months now. I am not aware of any client that has read them. Even though it's no. very available to them and they could. They- it's, a, it's once again, Alan, or Aaron, you were calling out a perfect part. This is just the early stages. There are so many places that have not yet fully got it going. Of those that have got it going, we have not seen how patients are going to react to it. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if people react to it perfectly fine. And then our culture and other conversation items, kind of the zeitgeist changes a bit, and then there's a different viewpoint on it. Uh, I think we're, it's, I think one interesting component, since a lot of us are in healthcare, is um, something I would like to keep an eye on is grievances. Uh, 
And grievances in of themselves are not a negative thing. Medicine treats them as a negative thing. Business treats them as a positive thing. We want to hear from customers, uh, which is, again, is another word that sometimes people are not as crazy about when it comes to patients. But we want to hear from the people that we're serving, right? Are we doing a good job? Not only am I doing a good job, but if I did a good job, did you recognize that I did a good job? And very often how you resolve a grievance, which they call service recovery in the world of economics, really can tie you to a patient. It can lead to more rapport, better outcomes. So I'm curious as open notes plays out, if I was in a hospital system or a C-suite type of individual, that might be something to look at. What are the grievances like? Have they dropped off? My hypothesis would be they would drop off because there would be more understanding. And if there was a misunderstanding, you and the patient would find a way to resolve it immediately because you're you're looking at it. Most people, when they're upset and they grieve, it's because they felt unheard or they were surprised by something they read. And I think in this era, it's not going to be like that. Um, is, would you encourage people to look over their notes or, or, and would you prompt them to do that? You know, I think I think it depends upon the setting. So if I was a primary outpatient physician, I think I would want to have a, a kind of plan and uh, much like you would do with any as you describe your practice and how often you see people and what the rules of, you know, all those different things you do when you're first onboarding a new intake. I think this would be part of it is we participate in open notes. Um, I cannot advise you. Uh, I wouldn't advise every single patient the same thing for any sort of treatment, but you do have, so right off, you have accessibility to it. Now, at future sessions, if you want to talk to me about what the positives and negatives are about having access to this, I'd be happy to process it with you. But I think it's really important to have kind of a set, just generic way of presenting it. Now, in my psyche are totally different way I would probably look at it, right? Because for a lot of people, that's going to be something that you're going to see. I think emergency rooms will be an interesting way, not just psychiatric, but medical emergency departments as well, will be an interesting data set to follow to see how many people look into that. Because right now, emergency department data sets are some of the least looked at medical records. Wow. That's doesn't seem... Uh, right. <laughs> well, once again, we, as far as I know, I don't, I don't have an etiology for that. It could be technological that they don't have the portal to access it, but it doesn't feel that way. I think there's a, the most large health systems are using a, you know, my portal, patient portal, my whatever, some, some way to access things. Um, I think part of this may also be the rapidity. Remember that part of this whole conversation was how soon can they have access? Theoretically, patients have access to their records now. That, that's not a new thing. It's just, it's very laborious. It's hard to get to them. And there's a lot of ways that information can be kept from them through a process. What this new federal guideline is, is to get rid of that and say, no, they need to have timely access to it. Not mm. the minute they walk out the door, but we have to do much better than we're doing now. You can't just send them to medical records and have them sign a release. What, what do you, uh, what do you, what experiences do you have with patients posting e either your own or, or other people's that you've heard, but uh, patients posting stuff on social media, posting their, their actual notes on social media. Does I that happen? Not, yes. <clears throat> I have not had any person. Cause once again, the note belongs to the patient it's theirs. And so uh, I've not had this happen to me or any of my direct colleagues, but I have talked to people across the country who it has happened to. Thankfully, so far, it wasn't a bad thing. It was the patient being proud of themselves and loved, once again, some of the provider affirming hopeful language. And they were using it kind of as a, a kudos to where they were in their recovery or where they were uh, coming out of a trauma, things like that. So it was a positive post, but still, it's your note that's out there. Now, once again, you could play both sides of this. Theoretically, should we be nervous to have our notes read? Uh, I think I'm more nervous for the patient 
and the patient's confidentiality. And once again, the patient has waived the confidentiality by posting it on the web. Right. That's, uh, that's terrifying. How did it, you get- <laughs> Spot on. It's good, sir. Spot on. How did you get into this topic, Tony? Uh, yeah, for me, it was a pretty um, straightforward segue. So as somebody that does mostly emergency psychiatry work, we are in the specialty of psychiatry that has the most overlap with forensics. We are dealing predominantly mm-hmm. with involuntary populations, high acuity, often individuals who either don't want the care or don't want the care and the method in which it's being suggested. So we're always dealing with a lot of high acuity risk documentation. So most, most of my career, one of my favorite things to talk about and learn about and learn from others about is risk management, risk assessment, and risk mitigation. So with that always being kind of one of my forefronts, when this popped up, it was a natural segue. And as I mentioned, it's been a journey for me, too, because my initial conversations, maybe to some departments that you may have heard me speak at, were all about, well, here's what we don't want to say in our notes, right? Be careful. Don't use this. Don't use this. Don't use this. You'll be misunderstood. It places you at risk. It's not good. And now what I'm really trying to do with kind of part two, if you will, of that message and part two of those grand round series is, in addition to all that, what can we do that's positive? not just to protect ourselves, but how can we use this to engage with patients? And I really think the options are there. And once again, as professional communicators, and uh, as mentioned earlier, as people that are often very philosophically minded and have a lot of, of gifts of ways to phrase things, we can do a lot of good with our documentation in addition to not just protecting ourselves. And that concludes this extended section of part three of Open Notes. Thank you so much, Tony, for joining us for three episodes. Three episodes. That was really (laughs) great. Thank you, all three of you. It is my pleasure. And I I learn a lot from hearing the questions and thinking through this myself. So I appreciate everything you've given me to ponder as well. This was lovely. Thank you.